Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ryan Meeks, and after years of trying to make life work as a struggling artist, independent filmmaker, and musician, I thought to myself, hey, self, wouldn't it be helpful to ask other artists how they're finding their path in this world? And so now, that's exactly what I'm doing on a bi-weekly basis. Welcome to the Path of Art. Welcome to the Path of Art. Today on our show, we have Peter Breinholt. So Peter Breinholt is a musician from Utah who's very popular in Utah, and uh, he's got quite a portfolio here. And uh, Peter, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. I'm really glad to have you on. Yeah, we're and, all friends, huh? Uh, yeah, we, we ended up uh, <laughs> sort of. connect, yeah, connecting back in the day. And, um, I, and in fact, I think I ran into you... Um, uh, a few years ago, when I was with KSL News Radio, and we went down to interview Jim Caviezel oh, yeah. at the OUR. Oh yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And I think I ran into you, and I, I just yeah. said hi. And it's 2018. Was, I can give you the exact right. Thing. Yeah, yeah. We just yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. And he and he had a song of yours uh, that was connected to the documentary. Yeah, that uh, they that, used it in the credit. Yeah, they right. used it in the film, and and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's that's why we were there. You've done a lot of music, and. I wanted to know what what inspires you to write your music. Um, well, there's the bigger inspired, like what inspired me to to get into music, and then there's individual songs. And mm-hmm. um, not to complicate the question, but I I, I got into music a because um, it was the thing I I just kept coming back to. I had lots of hobbies growing up, but it mm-hmm. I always came back to music. And and then two, I I came to a point in my life where uh, I had to make a decision. And while my friends are going off to <laughs> graduate schools and starting careers and stuff, I I just um, struggled. I really struggled. Um, I still struggle with it actually. But I at the at the time, it was like. <clears throat> all the doors opened for music. I would just put forth a little effort and record, you know, do a show here, put out, you know, make a homemade tape and play it to friends and stuff. And it just seemed like that's where all the energy was with, with everything I was doing. All the doors were opening. So that led me into music. I felt like, you know, I don't, uh, what else am I going to do? And and this is kind of point, I'm, you know, life is pointing me in this direction. And then in terms of how, how I write songs, it's all it's all kinds of it's all kinds of ways, but um, I probably I'm just a I'm a fan first. I, I would mm-hmm. say the number one inspiration for me is other music. I I, I, I I'm I'm still like kind of um, obsessed about finding new songs that bring that bring some kind of new that, inspiration how, to yeah you. or that energy. You know you know that feeling where you. You, you hear a song and you're like, "Oh my gosh, where is that? I got to download that now." And then mm-hmm. you listen to it 20 times that day. Like I'm still on the hunt for those songs, you know. Right. And those have a tremendous effect. I often turn around and like, I want to do that. I want to come up with my own version of that, or I want to, or I just want to sit down and I just want to get back into the practice of creating music. It never gets old. What songs would you say that you you've played the most throughout your career? On stage, well, there's the the songs off the very first album are probably um, well. There's a couple on those ones. There, you know, we don't have hits. We're we're we're, we're not you know radio a radio band, but but we do have like 
kind of hits. Like crowd favorites or something? Yeah, Mm -hmm. so You Wear Flowers, Mm -hmm. uh, which is on our first album, which is kind of a, you know, it's really upbeat song. That one, uh, although we have done plenty of shows without playing that song, that that song is one that people really always want to hear. And people ask me all the time, do you ever get tired of playing that song? It's three chords. <laughs> and, you know, you want to say the performer in me wants to say, no, no. But, but yeah, the band jokes behind the scenes are like, oh, right. well, we got to play flowers. Mm-hmm. We don't, again, we don't always, but um, that's fun. But it actually, that song serves a, a function in the show too. Like even though like kind of a turnaround in the energy of the of the show. Exactly. Right? We put it right in the middle of the show. It's it's like it you know, it cleans the palate. Like once we've done that show, reset. It's like mm-hmm. we're you know, we've got the, you know, oftentimes the crowd is on their feet and then we can do anything after that song. It's a real attention getter. It's a it brings a lot of energy to the show. So even if the band is sometimes, you know, kind of we don't roll our eyes at the song, but sometimes we're like, okay, here's here's the part of the show where we got to yep. do it, and, and we are on autopilot, uh, which I hate to admit. Uh, we understand the function of that song in the show; it, mm-hmm. it resets the whole show. So, so that's one. Jerusalem and What About are are also off that first album. And all of them, uh, all of them have um, had periods where we let them rest. We mm-hmm. just left them out. We didn't do Jerusalem for uh, a few years. We didn't mm-hmm. do What About for about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then so so what about's been um been a fan favorite you've redone it a few times one on a EFY album mm-hmm. and um on on your best of maybe it's the same maybe same. that's the same as the EFY version is that yes that is and then we did a live we did we did a live version of it on the live album right. and and that we modeled that one after the the right. 2000 version and so and so you had set that one aside for a while. Yeah. And so what a what a what about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brought nice. it back onto the stage with you guys. Just the feeling you just felt like it was time to bring I it back. Think, I think on that one um so as we were talking about before like sometimes you 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 put a song aside just because it reaches a point where it feels like you're you, you know the when you're on stage playing it that some of the feeling's gone or you're in mm-hmm. autopilot a little bit and you don't want that. You want to you want to fill your show with songs that are alive mm-hmm. for for the band, and that one had kind of gone that way. So we set it aside, and often when we do that with the song, um, they creep back on their own when they're ready. It's like they have you know a mind of their own, and, and it'll come sometimes in the form of a, re- a rearrangement or you're jamming. I don't know if you watch the Beatles get back, but they would mm-hmm. they would start every session by playing old songs from their club days, from the cavern days, and then they would move into the new songs. And just a warm up, but we'll do that too. As we rehearse suddenly you'll 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 do like uh like we just reinvented this song called And She's True from our second album. That's, oh yeah. And we went years mm-hmm. without playing that song because it was what I would call a mid tempo malaise. Mm-hmm. Like, it is pretty mid tempo. Yeah, it's mid tempo. Mm-hmm. It's not. And, and live shows are often about the extreme. So you, you you want the upbeat and you want the super mellow. Mm-hmm. But the mid tempo Malay songs, you, you know, you, you can only you can't do too many of those. So that's where and she's true fit. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what I may have heard a, a song on the radio that was like oh like and she's true could follow this a little bit. Like it was <clears throat> song was originally patterned after a band called the Sundays and. And anyway, I re, I kind of rearranged it, and it is now a, it is now the number one song in our show after fifteen years of never playing it. So mm. they creep back, and they're better than ever. And, and then you kick yourself because you're like, why didn't we record, record it, it that, that way? way? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so what about? I think the thing with it. What about? I had written a, 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 a string arrangement, and I was really happy with that. And 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 and. That was one piece of it. But even with that, we let it rest for a while. And I think it was doing – we did this show at the Sandy Amphitheater. And I, we, it was not in the set list. And I think I got a double encore. And so I wasn't planning on doing it. I did it. And I think – I don't know. It was kind of like, there it is. It's new. It's new again. Feels feels great. So we brought it back in, I think, 2021 maybe. It's, it's, it's back. Oh, cool. And so um, we have a live recording – of um, 
the new what about? Yeah. Was that the... It's the Ed, Ed Kenley Amphitheater. Ed Kenley. It's in Layton, Utah. And uh, it's a 4th of July show. And we had a uh, string section playing with it. And we got we got some of the best players. I mean, this is a, a real great It sounds really section. full. It yeah. sounds... Uh, and he gave me a sneak peek <laughs> before the show. And it, it sounds really full. Let's listen to this new live version of What About...
That's those strings really add a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, normally it was just a cello, which gave it a really good feel. But those extra strings really add quite a bit. I can see why you brought why you brought it back into. Yeah, and that's when you yeah. like that's when you <laughs> again, you, you know, you had the advantage of two decades, you know, and you do a better version and. It's, and you're like, oh, I should have recorded it originally this way. And that's mm-hmm. why people do live albums. And that's why they do sometimes mm-hmm. even re-recordings. Like there, yeah. there are certain greatest hit albums, you know, where where they actually re-record this. You know, James Taylor's most famous versions are not the original versions. They're, they're, they were re- mm-hmm. re-recordings for the greatest hits album. And so have you always uh, produced your own music is or, or do you uh, or does someone else produce your music? combination i did i i produced uh the first 15 years of albums so so like recording as well like you recorded yourself no and- no we would always we'd always go into back so back then it's different now because because mm-hmm. people have uh software and computers and rooms mm-hmm. you can do it uh yourself which is how i did my most recent album completely recorded at home and i produced all and i just had scott wiley down in provo mix it and first three albums we would go into professional recording studios but i was the one i was the one paying first of all and then i was the one bringing the songs and saying okay we want a four piece band on this one you know do this play that and i'd arrange them and you know it helped that we were performing live a lot some of these songs were road tested and ready to go but i was the one who had the I was like the director. I, I had the ultimate say, and then in <clears throat> and then in two thousand six, uh, it had been seven years since I'd done a, a an album, and I was really sort of struggling about over that. And I felt like I had a writer's block. And and I I approached Scott Wiley down at June Audio. He's the best. Um, and so and he's a local um, mixer producer. He's a producer. Yeah. So. So he has a he has a it's called June Audio. It's in Provo. It's 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 since been expanded into a world class studio down there. And and Killers, and Magic Dragons, and Neon Trees. A lot of these bands have have recorded there and worked with Scott. And so he's good. And mm-hmm. so we went to lunch. And yeah, at this point, I hadn't done an album in seven years. And I was like, you know, what? I'm going to let go of the reins. Would you produce this? And he's like, well, here's what I would do. I'd get rid. You know, he actually said, "I would. You've got your tried and true band. I would actually get rid of them for this album, because mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know. There, I know. I listen to your albums. I know where they're going to go, and that's true of any musician, right? He just so let's. So, we brought in all new players, and it was a whole new process. And I really learned on through on that album to let go and just trust somebody else's instinct. And we came up with an album called All the Color Green, which is my wife's favorite album and I'm very proud of, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And, then on the, and, then, and then the next album after that, um, we were into the realm of, you know, recording in my home studio, and I just tracked, it was a whole different experience, and it was, I'm proud of that one too, so... So we're going to move on to a a break, and when we get back, uh, we're going to go into uh, how Peter got started. Just we're we're going to go over his path and uh, see just how he got to where he is and uh, what he learned along the way. So we'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome 
Welcome back to The Path of Art. We're here with Peter Breinholt, a Utah musician who's been doing this thing for quite a long time. And, uh, well, uh, since, I mean, since before your first album in the 90s, I mean, you've been performing. So uh, he's got like 30 years plus just doing music uh, successfully in Utah, uh, which uh, is something to look up to. I mean, what got you started in all of this? I mean, what... What got you interested in in writing music? Um, <clears throat> it goes back to my childhood. Um, like anybody who loves music, I had experiences pretty young age where um, I just got sucked in to certain songs. And did you also stay up until like two in the morning learning guitar solos? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, and trying like my earliest memories are, and I don't want to bore the audience with the whole story, but I mm-hmm. I just do remember we had a piano, and I didn't we didn't we weren't a musical family. My dad was kind of musical, but we had a piano there, and and I would so I'd have these moments where I would experience something with you know, with the song. You know, I've said in other other interviews that like the um, the Beatles the Beach Boys God Only Knows or certain songs where I would go and I would try to figure them out by ear mm-hmm. and I would for me it was like just fascinating trying to capture whatever it was that made me the, feel moved the magic can that I was get, there yeah can I recreate that mm-hmm. and that's how it started for me and, and it just never left um, and then so by the time so I remember I had a in junior high, I had kind of a re-explosion of music in my life, and it was a, it was a time in my life where I had um, I just had the time to do it, and I just I really started writing songs, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, mm-hmm. on the piano. I didn't know how to do lyrics, just melodies. High school comes along, and by that point, you have friends who play, so you form bands. I was lucky because I was at a school where we they'd actually give us opportunities to we'd play dances and assemblies and what they called stomps and mostly covers. But but in the process of learning covers, like I, you know, I was the guy with the ear, and so the, mm-hmm. the bass player couldn't figure out the bass line. I'd learn the bass line, teach it to him. Same with the piano. So I did that with hundreds of songs. And that actually taught me. That was my schooling. It taught me how to how does the anatomy of a song, mm-hmm. like the, the arrangement of a song. Okay, well, the bass usually, you know, matches the kick drum, and you usually it's like taking a class, right? And so, by the time I'm you know eighteen, seventeen, eighteen years old, I start to apply all those rules or all those things I've learned to my own songs, and. Um, by that point, we had a lot of performing experience. But what was really sort of calling to me, um, you know, so in college, I'm become suddenly way more interested in just doing this, the Neil Young thing, just the solo Neil Young thing. Right, I, right. I, can I go and play at a club or at a, at a coffee shop alone and c- carry my own? That like seemed like it sounds funny, but that seems like the Mount Everest for to me at the time. I was like, I can do it with a band playing cover songs, can I write original songs, sit in the corner of this coffee shop and be of interest to anybody? And that's the key, though, right? Being of interest to anybody. Because you can play at a coffee shop and have no one pay attention to you, but can you play and people go, hey, that sounds really good. Yeah. And here's what was interesting about that. Mm -hmm. I did it. Like, I I did it. Mm -hmm. And people said nice things and it, you know, I got rehired. It was nice, but <clears throat> that's not what did it for. That's not actually what helped me get some traction. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, I'm writing my songs and I'm, I'm in college by this point, but I have an old, you know, you remember those old Tascam four track recorders? Um, the ones with tapes. Yeah. 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 My, my dad had one. That's so, <laughs> So listening to your story, there's some real parallels to my junior high experience, too. I, I, I got into um, 
writing back then too. And my dad had one of those yeah. four track recorders. And so I would, I would record some of my songs. You don't want to hear them. They're bad. Yeah. But yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about. That's so funny. So I had one. It was like nowadays people would use GarageBand or, or Logic or Pro Tools, but mm-hmm. like, you know, back then I had a four track and I was like, so I would, I would, yeah, I would, I remember one Christmas winter break, I would take, I, I spent the whole break. I took the Beatles song, Dear Prudence. I said, I'm going to recreate this song note for note. And I, and I did it. And I, there's six, by the way, there's six guitars on that song. That's what I learned. Oh, wow. And um, so eventually I start c- creating, building my own songs with this Tascam. And I'm in college by this point. And, um, you know, I, I, I let somebody hear it. And... This is in the day when every car had a tape player, and they like that was the that was the the bomb going off for me because it was like their reaction. Like, yes, I'd been playing Geppetto's Pizza in the corner playing cover songs, but when I saw for when I sheepishly shared six songs that I'd recorded at home with a friend, and they put it in their in their wagoneer there and listened to it for a week and then came back and said, Oh my gosh, you've got to record these songs. And I, and I've recorded, I've dubbed two or three versions, you know, copies of this tape and given it to my friends. That's when, that's when, that's when I knew, like, that's when I felt really encouraged. Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of courage itself though, just to share your music with people that aren't family, mm-hmm. you know, and friends yeah. And to see what their reaction is. Oh yeah, like I played it cool, like yeah, these old songs, old things I wrote. But inside, I'm dying because mm-hmm. like this is this is it. This is what I dreamed about. <laughs> like they're gonna, this is they're either gonna respond to these or they're not, and and they did, and they did actually beyond what. I mean, they did in a big way. So that kind of started your progression into doing your thing, you know, mm-hmm. writing more music, recording it, and getting it out there. Yeah. Uh, so was there a point that you thought it maybe was a bad idea? Because I get that all the time. And I know I know other artists kind of get we get in these <clears throat> these spots in our in our mind where we're just like it it it's not it's not quite imposter syndrome, yeah. but it you just see how things are going and you know that you felt good about it before. But for some reason right now, you really just I ha- don't. I have them all the time. I still have them. Still a pain in my existence. <laughs> so, yeah, this is actually – so early on, um, like there was a lot of stuff going on inside of me mm-hmm. at this time because my heart and my experience were saying, you're meant to do music. And I was seeing the evidence of that as people were responding to my early demos. My head was saying, you know, not, you know, all your friends are preparing to take the MCAT and and the LSAT and they're thinking about graduate. And I actually came from a family like that. So So my, you know, all my siblings are academics and have graduate degrees and my dad was a college professor and so I had this battle going on like this is not legitimate even if everybody flips out over your music this is just a hobby like (laughs) you can't do music so and there was a little bit I think there was a little bit of uh, I don't know shame is a strong word there was a there was a battle were you ever told not to do it no that's the funny thing (laughs) they saw inside my dad and I've told this story so many times. My my dad is, you know, he's a Ivy League business professor, and then we then we relocated to Utah. But you you know, in my mind, I was projecting onto him. He's like, this is not his idea of a conventional, solid, safe profession for mm-hmm. one of his kids. When my dad um, heard what I was doing, he he was. He flipped out. He was so like, supportive. Oh, in a good way. Flipped in a out. good way. <laughs> and it, it was like, yes, I I had full support of both parents, and I think I think some of it was. I'm um, I'm going back. You know, twenty five years now, thirty years. Some of it was cultural. 
I think uh, I don't know yeah. how it is in LA. I don't know how it is in other places, but I think it's Salt Lake City and the culture I was in. Mm-hmm. I was getting a lot of messages is like, look, you provide for your family. Don't be, <laughs> don't be chasing all these dreams. You you think about your kids. Get you married, you have kids. Yeah. Or were you married at the time? No, already? I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I didn't get married. I was doing music full time six years by the time I got married. So. So I had that advantage. Mm-hmm. And so how did, like now when that happens though, because you did mention that every now and then, I mean, you have that doubt that just creeps in. How do you deal with that? Yeah, it looks different now because now it's like, you know, <laughs> well, back then it's like, I got to provide for my kids. And now it's like retirement. So I, I have actually, this gets into a bigger conversation for me, but... I, I think over the years, you know, having years and years and years of having an internal battle where you have your you have your successes and you're like, see, it's working. And then you have your you have your down moments where you're like, what have I done? What have I what have I been doing? You know, and then I have my moments when I'm like, I've done some good stuff, you know, and I've and then I have other moments where I like. What have I not done? Like, you know, mm-hmm. I got friends in this position. And so I think everyone does it. But mm-hmm. for me, it's actually been – it's it's given way to maybe a – I don't want to get too philosophical. But I, I think there's been a sort of inner journey around it that has – like I've learned a lot about fear. I've learned a lot about jumping off cliffs when your brain is saying don't – don't do it. Mm-hmm. And I've learned about, I've just learned a lot about um, how things manifest and how a lot of the voices that I've been fighting in my head, that a lot of people fight in my head, are voices, are illusions. Does that make sense? They're I don't want to get too, uh, yeah, I want to get too cosmic on you, but I, but that's been a big part of what I've learned. And I, I've actually come to a place now where I look back and say, okay, music's part of what I was supposed to do. But the other part is this, this other part of the journey, which involves, has involved fear, has involved uncertainty and has involved, it's been, it's been a beautiful thing for me as I look back mm-hmm. on my life and it all makes sense to me. And so, Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, it it does make sense. I mean, you've you've broken through some barriers mentally to be able to uh, to pursue and continually pursue what you're doing, and and I think I think we all have to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I think everyone still is breaking through those barriers, and some never do. Yeah, I mean, I know that I'm just starting to break through some barriers that have held me back for a very long time. And uh, I think the sooner someone can do that, the better. Yeah, and it has to do with courage and has to do with faith, has to do with, like I had somebody once say to me, and this is a very intuitive person who's songwriting, like a, a, a songwriter who who has become uh, almost a mystic in terms of how to, like the songwriter whisperer. And she's not from Utah, she, she said... Um, she said, she said, I feel impressed to tell you, Peter Breinholt, I don't tell us to everybody, but <clears throat> the safe path is the risky path for, for you, and the risky path is the safe path for you. And what, what, I, I didn't get it at first, but the more I thought about it, it's like, okay, well, the oh. risky path is music or, or – So she's talking down the illusion. Yeah, she's, she's, saying, she's saying for Peter Breinholt, it would be far riskier if, if he, out of fear – walked away from this risky journey he's been on and went and got a conventional job just to feel safe, mm-hmm. there's a lot more risk in that for you. Not for everybody, but for you and vice versa. Like you you stick with what you have felt so far guided and led to do and you're going to be fine. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes yeah, sense to me. <laughs> it, it makes a lot of sense. So I went right out of college I recorded the first album two weeks after I graduated from college and I'm living at home at my parents' house. So there's no, like I have no overhead in my life. So mm-hmm. that part was easy. And then and then 
the album did well enough that I ended up buying a home and living <clears throat> and I had roommates and <clears throat> I was I was basically making a living as a mus- musician right out of the bat or right, right out of the gate. And then it grew and grew and then I got married and started having kids. And then around 2002, I was having a freak out moment. Where I was like, okay, I got young kids now. Now what do I do? And I did start to explore job options mm-hmm. and I did you know I did things here and there but <clears throat> I actually never committed to a full time I've never had a full time job if, if you know except for my music but I went down the path you know and I my dad owned a little my dad had several businesses and so I I do work for them and then I did some video work and I did some teaching but I never Never got off the risky path. <laughs> <laughs> what did, what do you think is one of the, the most important lessons that you've learned from from doing music? So in 1993, four or five, six, it stuff happened so fast that, that I had to learn a lot of stuff. You know, I had to mm-hmm. learn about the LLC and paying sales tax and all that yeah. stuff and registering your business. Um, but it was kind of on the fly, and there was always a point to it. Right, I wasn't just learning at school. I was like trying to play catch up with, with the reality of what was happening mm-hmm. with my business, and which kind of makes it hard to get over the learning curve because you're just playing catch up. You're just putting out fires, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and I, you know, and I, and I, I learned enough, and I had help back then. But you know, if you're, if you're, but I was never where like, you know, you read about the Beatles, uh, you read about. Justin Bieber, you lead, you know, there's just, there's so many resources because the, the, cause they're on such a scale and there's so much happening so fast and there's such a budget that there's just people do, you know, there's an army of accountants. Yeah. And, well, and even the, even the songwriting at that level, mm-hmm. like there's a list, like, so I, I'm not, I'm not like, I would probably do this if, if, if it presented itself and there was a, a need for it. I've, I've, I've always seen myself as a songwriter, and so when American Idol started happening, and people would say, "This is years ago," people would mm-hmm. say, "Like, well, how, how do you, what do you think about that?" Because people were becoming stars Star- overnight, yeah, overnight on that. People, what do you think of that? And and I'm like, you know, I'm just I'm a songwriter. I just I'm, I'm into right. They were Pete great. Townsend. They I'm were into, great performers, but it wasn't songwriting. Yeah, that's not right. what I'm. When I was really drawn, like if mm-hmm. I'd love to. I'd love to sit and watch these guys write songs. That's what it's always been about that for me. Mm -hmm. And so when you get like, if you look at like, um, you know, Taylor Swift, who's a amazing Mm -hmm. songwriter, but she also is in a position where she, um, can loop in, can, can, can bring each time, you know, there's a new project coming. She has a never ending, uh, list of resources in terms of co-writers right which i think is probably really helpful because in in writing a song you always get to that point where you're like i don't know if this sounds good anymore you know because i've heard it so many times i've been trying to redo the lyrics so many times i've recorded it this many times does this even sound good anymore yeah and i think that's the advantage of having all those other people to be like, no, it doesn't, or you know, to tell you what needs to be changed. And collaborating presents its own challenges. Like it's it's mm-hmm. it's not been easy for me, and and I'm, I've always sort of been jealous. The Lennon McCartney collaboration, mm-hmm. or the you know, there's so many of them. Uh, Elton John bring top of them, and t- to have that person to say it's too long, shorten it up, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm teaching a songwriting class at Snow College. Oh, nice! I did last semester and. And um, I had the students te- in the course of the class. I had them write five songs, or was it four? Anyway, the last one was a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And I remember like saying to them, like, I actually don't have a ton of experience. I don't like collaborating, but it's a very important skill to have. So I, we, you know, we taught collaborate, and I had them pair up, and they had to write, collaborate and then present the songs. I think by and large they were the, they were actually the best songs of the whole semester so you've been working on some new material what we, so the over the last few years it's been interesting because because with covid 
We stopped performing. I started posting like virtual performances, which a lot of people did, you know, or, mm-hmm. and it was so, those are, those are really fun to do. But somewhere in there, um, we sold our house and moved from one side of Salt Lake to the other side of Salt Lake. And it, it, we lost my rehearsal space. Like I had a studio. And so our, one of the guys in the band said, well, I think we got to just keep playing and let's just use my living room. And so he kind of took ownership of the rehearsal schedule for us, which I had typically done. And he's been really good at saying every week, every week. And half the time I show up and wait, I don't know what we're going to do. <clears throat> but every week we've been doing it. And inevitably when you do that, you start coming up with new material. So in our case, what I've been doing is presenting a bunch of um, songs that I, re- I wrote and in some cases even recorded but never released. So they're B-sides. But I started running them by the band. So I have all these B-sides. And so I st- I've been like songs that I just haven't released. So I started bringing them to these rehearsals and the band is tightening them up. And um, so suddenly we we have a whole album's worth right now. We haven't recorded. I've been traveling a lot this summer, but we've been thinking in August or in the fall, we will maybe go into a studio and record them live. Uh, but on this most recent trip I took last week, I went to Lake Tahoe and this always happens to me. I put my headphones on and I have a seven hour, eight, nine hour drive. And, um, you know, I, I just, I started listening to eighties music, like quirky, mechanical, obscure pop songs with great energy. And I suddenly I want to do that. I want to take all these B sides and do them that way. There's a certain production style that I'm kind of fascinated with. I always have been, but I suddenly I was like, Ooh, I could take these B sides which would, which would not be a band process. It would be me alone mm-hmm. in the studio, and I hate would hate to do that with the band because they've been working these songs. But we'll see. I'll experiment with both. So either way, these hopefully we'll get. Song. I mean, originally we were thinking we'll just call it sessions B sides, the B side, mm-hmm. and um, there's some good stuff. So this one's called the house. By the side of the road. This is a, a live record. This is a live recording from last December at the Rose Wagner Theater. Okay. And uh, yeah. there are souls with lives withdrawn in a place they call their own. And there's a star up in the heavens in a lonely firmament. And there are some who blaze a path. Where the highways never pass, but not me. Keep as close as I can be to the people I can see. So turn around or hide those eyes, explode across the countryside. Let me build my house beside the Drum and fiddle Playing all alone out there And there are noises in the night Let the travelers travel light But not me Keep me close as I can be To the people I believe So turn around, don't hide those eyes Across the countryside, let me build a house beside the road. Let the wheelies speak about their visions and their dreams, and all the places they have seen. And they are welcome here. But the travelers never know 
in this place beside the road. new song from Peter Breinholt that was that the first time it's been played was uh, uh, it, sorry when you did this live recording or uh, I did a version of it once for a fundraiser nice <laughs> but this it was an inc- it was an incomplete this was the first mm-hmm. and this still is incomplete right but it feels like this was the first it's, the debut it's, it's sounding good I liked it cool so I, I thought it was great so just one more question. This has been a great interview. Uh, I've I've loved having you on here, just kind of talking about music and just kind of the similarities of. I think a lot of musicians kind of go through a lot of these these things. And so, if if you ran into someone that was just starting out, like I want to be a musician, you know, this is my passion. What what advice would you give them? It's so funny. I get asked this so often and I still don't feel like I've got the answer for them. Except, uh, you know, I do, I, I, like in my case, there was an underlying sense of purpose. Even when I was kind of groping in the dark and not knowing if it was going to work out, there's just a, I think, I think if you have that, and for me, it, it roots way back. I mean, it's it goes way back to a young age. And I just think it's the kind of if you can. Find, here's an example. So my my second son uh, is uh, away at school. He's at a place called Kenyon College in Ohio, and and it's away from home. He doesn't. He didn't know a single person there. He just had this dream to go there. It's this beautiful. It's like going to Hogwarts. It's this beautiful school, and he at a kind of a young age had that dream. And so we drop him off last year. And as a parent, you're like, you know, what are we doing? And you're worried. And he he literally doesn't know anybody there. And he, and he we start getting feedback from him like a week later. And when he comes back for Thanksgiving and stuff, well, how was it? And he's just like. I love it. I'm supposed to be there. There are hard things. There are great things. But all through it all, I know why I'm there. And like I, I when I heard that, it was like music to my ears. I thought he can go. Th- he can get through anything if he knows why he's there. And he's got friends who are transferring out or not coming back this year. It's not, he can't understand that. And so for me, it's like that with music a little bit. Like I just, if, if you, and it's true of any career really. I, I just have this underlying sense of purpose in it. Like I don't really have any other choices. This is what I think I'm designed to do. And that has gotten me through a lot. Um, you know, I remember a friend of mine who's a full-time musician, who's been very successful and people ask him the same question. And the way he puts it is like, you know, find out if find out if this is what God wants you to do, and if you have that, then it's all you need. But anyway, I don't know. If that's good advice for people. I think that's that's very good understanding and perspective. Because um, a lot of times, I'm not sure that you know, I I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this yeah. right, and. 
And so I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, I, like in terms of like how to navigate the music world in 2022, I'm, I'm not your guy because I, I don't even, I haven't figured it out either. Yeah, a lot has changed. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot I has had, changed. For this, for this songwriting class, you know, I mm-hmm. had, uh, so um, I asked a pianist, Paul Cardall, to do a guest lecture. And he's in Nashville. Mm-hmm. He, he uh, just did a Zoom and and he, and I asked him because he does really well what I don't do really well, which is the business stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was like these kids, these students, like it was like, oh, okay, like this is what we want too. And I remember early on when I when I met him, and he he would actually come and follow us to shows. We did a show in Rexburg, and he he said. I didn't even know him. He just called me. He's like, would you mind if I tagged along and just shadowed you guys? I just want to observe. I'm like, sure. And so, and I, I remember hearing his early work and I was like, hmm. But what he had was this vision and this kind of strategy. And he's it, killing it now. It he's just absolutely killing it. And actually his music has caught up to him. Well, it's the opposite of me. It's like, to me, it's all about the music and the business will catch up. It was business and the musical catch up and that's exactly what's happened. So I've learned not to underestimate the value of, of that side of it. I'm just not your guy. I'm, I'm a right brain or I'm a, I'm a creative mess. I know exactly <laughs> how you feel. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show, listening to your new music and your old music. It's just, Re, been, redone. It's just been a great experience. <laughs> and it's it's a great opportunity just to talk to you. And so thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Do it again, it. anytime. Yes, let's do it. And those of you listening out there, this has been The Path of Art with Peter Breinholt. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Path of Art. If you or someone you know is creative and would like to tell your story, reach out to me at rmeeks at ksl.com. I might feature you on the show. If you liked our conversation, please make sure you follow the show and give us a five-star rating and review. It really does help people to discover the show. Also, make sure you follow The Path of Art podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.